ready. Miguel, are you there yet? Anne-Marie, you're there. Laura Papa is here with me. Jackie's here. Uh, Laura Gomez, I see you. Good. Govinda is here. Thomas is there. And Vince Pia is sick. He's from Bridgeport, so he won't be joining us. All right, my friends in Yonkers. See, I, I'm still here watching. I'm going to take attendance now. Dan Condon, I see you. Okay. Um, Aldemar, you joined us via Zoom. Great. Uh, Doug Fitzmorris, I saw you. Rob Lyons is here with me in Huntington. He braved three hours of traffic to come and be with me. <laughs> I'm honored. Uh, Barbara, you're on Zoom tonight. Steve Morgante in the classroom. Uh, Paul, you're in the classroom. Uh, Benny, you're um, on Zoom. What about Robert Vigero? Yeah. Yeah. Where are you? I can't see you. You have to move your seat. Maybe here, Robert. Yeah, okay. You have to work for tonight. You're out of the view of the camera. I'm sorry. No problem. I want to see you. How about Daniel Cornell? Oh, here. I see you. Okay. Uh, Lucas? I can't see you either. You have to move over one seat. <laughs> Lucas, Lucas, Lucas. Lucas. <laughs> He's tired. He was on the Sorry. Uh, Bob Levy. Levy, Levy, Levy. Bob Levy. And Anthony Reno is on Zoom. How about Raphael? I see yeah. back here. All right. Good. We're good. I just pronounced his names wrong. That's why I said that. I had them in class last year. All right. So here we are live from Huntington. I was just uh, speaking with the students here, and I think they kind of like this arrangement. So we'll probably do it, um, plan for it the last Wednesday of every month. We'll set, offset dates with them. And if you notice what I did, you probably got you got emails from me. It was on the dashboard, and then I put the link on the Populi page, so that when I say that I'm in Huntington, you just have to click that link if you're joining us via Zoom. All right, hi Miguel, I see you. Good. All right, excellent. So it's just really Brother Carlos, uh, but he said he was coming here, but we'll see. Just and as I said, uh, Mariah will probably join us late and also Bill. So, good. All right, we'll make this. And now if I sit, I, I hate to sit and teach, but it's all right. You know? Um, you can all still see and hear me, right? Yep. All right. I think we set it up that it would be that way. Now, um, I'm not sharing the screen again. Uh, next week in uh, Yonkers, um, we're figuring out a way that I, you can see the PowerPoint, but I still can see you all because there's a smart board in there. So we're trying to figure that out. So bear with me. In the meantime, you have your um, notes either printed or on computer. So hopefully it works out. All right? OK. So. Let's see. So, of course, the first thing we need to do is um, just 
focus on being here, forgetting about what we left behind. Uh, again, we have a beautiful feast day uh, today. Uh, St. Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael. And happy feast day, Raphael. Uh, Tavares. <laughs> um, it's great. Um, so we've been really blessed with so many feast days on Wednesdays so far that we've, when we've met. So let us begin um, in prayer so that we can better focus on um, the material, uh, most importantly, the presence with each other. Um, so let us pray. Oh God, who disposed in marvelous order ministries, both angelic and human, graciously grant that our life on earth may be defended by those who watch over us as they minister perpetually to you in heaven. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. And that, of course, is from the collect from today's uh, liturgy. Yes. Just before we start, one, follow, one follow up to our question. You know, uh, yes. Before, I asked some of the people in my parish, were they observing this service or were they participating in it? And the answers were mostly, I never thought about that. Wow. Did you all hear that? Yeah, that's, see, that's something that as, uh, you know, well-informed people and parishes and schools, to bring that awareness. I can remember over 20 years ago when we first started to have really good um, adult faith formation, uh, when I was teaching down on the south shore of Long Island, I can remember teaching a liturgy class and there was a man uh, from a tower where I work, and the thing that he said at the end of the five-week session, he said, I am so excited to learn that I am a celebrator. Can you imagine? Mm -hmm. uh, that was amazing, and he never forgot it. And he was a lector, and he was the great lector. But um, it was that that just made him understand what it was that he was doing while he was there at Mass. So, you know, sometimes I say to myself, because I've been studying this for so long since the 1980s, sometimes I think, oh, this is old news. But I realize it's not, it's not old news, you know? Um, so, don't be afraid to create awareness in whatever your setting is uh, for people, um, because it's 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 new it's new to so many people. So it's like we have to um, just keep on uh, being aware ourselves and then being a witness to that. So that's a really interesting thing. Hey, Dr. Eschenauer, um, Dr. Eschenauer, I he, yes. I I totally agree with Rob. Um, I think we tend to we tend to not really understand what's happening out in the nave, and um, I think you know people not only to Rob's point as far as you know being witness and you know then you know becoming you know disciples and us evangelizing them, but also back 
to the issue of catechesis with the homily, uh, which is what actually brought me back into the church. And I had the opportunity to talk to a bunch of people uh, this weekend in my parish who thought, and I just asked them, I said, you know, do you think um, that during the homily, do you think, not that it should be a class, but do you think that there should be some form of catechesis within the homily? And 100% yes. And then I, as you know, while reading Metzger in chapter four, he talks about this also, about yes. how, you know, how there should be, you know, catechesis during the liturgy. And, and I think that's really what people look for. And that actually helps people, it pulls people into the church because the homily actually is what speaks to you. Um, and we were told, I remember in the first year by Father Villa, that when you get up and preach, it's a very, very, very important thing that you do. And you never, ever, ever know who that person is in the last row that you're speaking to. And when he said that, I got chills because that person was me like 20 years ago. Sure. No, you're absolutely right. But we want to keep in mind that um, the homily must. Hi, Mariah. You made I'm it. late. Good. That's all right. We have a couple of emails of people in similar situations. But just to uh, Anthony's point, the homily must focus on the readings. However, um, you can connect a point of doctrine with the readings. And I apologize, I was going to upload the homiletic directory that I mentioned uh, last time that has an appendix that connects every reading of every cycle with a point in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I forgot to write it down, I wrote it down tonight, you'll you have me, it. You want me to bring it next week? No, well I have it at home. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I'll upload it to files, just so you can see that it can be done. And when we get to really looking at the right of Christian initiation of adults, you will see that it gives an ancient, authentic um, explanation of what catechesis everywhere should look like. And the very first thing it says is accommodated to the liturgical year and the liturgy of the word. Right. So all catechesis should be connected to the word that is proclaimed on a particular Sunday. So you're absolutely right, but we most don't know how to do that um, properly. That's yeah, I think I think you know if you, if you have if if you have a good homilist, what I mean, what they do is they relate. Usually, it's like the you know the first reading to the gospel. Second reading is kind of out there that you try to relate. But, you know, again, Carl, what Carl Barth said was, you know, when you preach, it's, you know, not only that you're relating the the readings to, um, to you know, to the gospel and everything else. But on top of right. that, you're preaching basically with a Bible in one hand and with a, with a newspaper in the other to relate it to well, real that, world experience. Yes. We should come away saying, well, what does it mean for us? Right. Yeah, yeah. It, the, I've got sort of a, because having to preach every week, mm -hmm. I've got sort of a general, I'll call it an outline, short of not wanting it to be boring, but yeah. um, <laughs> start off with identifying a central theme between all of them, because where they're put together, there usually is. Yep. Okay. 
Um, then I go from there to basically just sort of in a summary way recap the uh, first reading, the second reading, and then to an extent, more of an extent to gospel. Okay, and then, is it, then I'll take that, and the third thing I do is to try to bring it into how we can use this gospel in our life. Exactly, and okay. that, that's, that's the catechesis. What did, because we have to remember, not to belabor the point, but it's a living word, and it's speaking to us today. And that's what, that's the catechesis. And as you will see uh, in tonight's um, session, we're going to develop that idea of what catechesis, particularly for catechumens, looked like, uh, up, you know, from the early church, particularly in the fourth century tonight. So um, thank you for asking that question. But I got also a couple more questions that were sent to me that I want to address. Uh, Dr. Eschenauer? Yes. Yeah, before we leave that topic, I yeah. just wanted to um, offer the um, USCCB in looking up um, what you said about liturgical catechesis. Mm -hmm. There's um, an article on there from September 30th, 2020, liturgical catechesis, liturgy and the new evangelization, which mm -hmm. was um, just some food for thought if anybody wants to do some further reading on the USCCD's website. So I offer that. Yeah, no, thank you. That's always a good resource to be familiar with what are the bishops uh, focusing on, what are they telling us, you know, to use it as a resource. Um, I don't do it as often as I should, but when I have a particular um, question in mind or I want to be up to date, I'll go right to the USCCB website and they're doing a lot of focus on catechesis because it's the catechetical directory. Without said all of this, so I have to dig deep. So. Yeah, and and you know, and I've mentioned this, that part of taking a course is not only about the information that you get from the teacher or what you're reading. It's part of knowing resources. That's one of the most valuable I learned when I was a student here in Huntington. Where to go for resources, you know, um, which is vitally important. And that's why we give you a bibliography and I throw out uh, titles for you. I mean, I have right here in front of me, this is came in the mail yesterday, the uh, catalog from Liturgy Training Publications. Go to their website, ltp.org. And there is a wealth of information that is all um, sound liturgical knowledge that you would get from here. And they have everything from, um, you know, practice, uh, the theology and the practice involved with the liturgy. And it's just knowing that these resources exist and um, where to go for it. So that that is great. Uh, but um, thank you. You're very welcome. Let me just address some of the questions which I really do appreciate as a teacher that questions do uh, that our sessions, you know, evoke some questions in your mind and you email them to me that's that or bring them up here. But uh, somebody had emailed me a reference from Metzger um, on page 41, uh, 
if you have it, you can look at it. But um, it's, it's referring to, and it's in quotation marks um, in the middle of the page, eating Christ. Let me just read the chapter. It's a very long chapter. <laughs> but it says, according to a concept prior to Judaism, this meal was first seen as eating with Christ. I think we know that from what we looked at in the first centuries. Um, recognized as present through faith as shown by the testimony of the disciples at Emmaus. An evolution occurred in the direction of quote unquote, eating Christ, according to the concept of Jewish sacrifices. So the question was to just kind of to look at that eating Christ, that evolution of eating Christ. So um, this is what I came up with to respond to that. Um, I, I just took down some notes so I can be succinct in my response. Um, as stated in Metzger, this all comes from the idea of Jewish sacrifice. And I think, as you know, in the temple, there was the sacrifice of animals, all right? Um, that stopped, of course, in 70, um, in the common era with the destruction of the temple. However, prior to that, um, most types of offerings, according to my research, actually could be eaten by the priest. And remember, priest in Judaism was different than priests that we know of today or by the one all right uh, symbolic today is the collection we are bringing our offerings you know but back then and in judaism people actually brought whatever it was for sacrifice uh people brought the bread and the wine from their home Himself 
with food and food gives us nourishment and food gives us life because without it we 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 die without food so jesus is saying i am food for your life i will sustain you you see you see what he's doing here by associating himself with that which nourishes and bread is indicative of food all right um so eating christ and kevin erwin in a book that i don't think is on your list but i introduce it to you um and you know he's the author of our context and text our dense uh required reading but he has another book called models of the eucharist and he actually has a chapter called food for the journey and um that's exactly what the eucharist is for us eating christ you know um it is hope for our journey it's promise promises us a new reality um it's a taste of heaven because we have to always remember that liturgy is a foretaste of the heavenly banquet right and a lot of this um is um reiterated to a certain extent in John Paul II's encyclical on the Eucharist, on the Eucharist and its relationship to the church. Uh, you can easily Google that and find it. But uh, the thing to attach it to um, my own, uh, say, personal experience at liturgy, very often, and I try to be consciously aware of this, when I receive Holy Communion, I try to be really conscious of having Jesus Christ within my interior. And one of the images that I just share with you is I think of Mary, how she had Christ inside her body. You know, she carried him in her womb. And that's an image that I just recently started to think about when I received Holy Communion. Another image is, is that we can consider ourselves living tabernacles, that we are, we are holding the, the real presence of our Lord within our body. I mean, that's an amazing image. Um, so I think that's what I got out of that phrase, eating Christ, you know, that he becomes, you know, when we eat food, whether you know especially if we eat healthy food you know it it makes us stronger and healthier and it just nourishes every part of us so we have to think of that eating christ receiving holy communion that's exactly what happens in our interior life in our spiritual life that it's going to be nourished and it's really a, a very rich but Metzger's pointing out that there was a shift from eating with Christ to eating Christ because they weren't with him after, you know, the ascension. They weren't with him like we're with each other. And forgive my back, but I'm trying to focus on it okay. And wrong. So does that, uh, let me just, does that make any kind of sense? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Well, just to take it one step further, mm -hmm. um, prior to Nero's death in 68 Common Era, 
He used that as a basis for within the Eucharist? Uh, um, yeah, we're going to, as we hopefully finish this up tonight, because we're so far behind, but we're going to see real emphasis in the Middle Ages with that, especially with the Council of Trent, uh, because after, you know, being with Christ, you know, and then very close to people who were with Christ, you know, it, it there is so much evidence that part of that got lost. So we really see an emphasis, particularly with uh, things like expedition of the blessed sacrament. I mean, we're facing the same problem today. I mean, look at speaking of the USCCB, that's gonna be a whole focus. And it's gonna be a focus I know in the Archdiocese of New York, because the statistics are pretty bad where it comes to um, people believing in the real presence or understanding what he, whatever that means. So there's a real emphasis um, uh, in the um, particular around the Council of Trent. Yeah. Okay. Thank That's you. Very good. So let me just address, there's two more questions um, that I want to address. Um, but one of them was, um, in the early church regarding the Trinitarian formula, uh, used in baptism. And actually, if you, um, the person who asked that question, uh, we addressed it, I think it was, I don't know if it was two weeks ago, it seems like we've been together forever, but it doesn't matter. It's in your notes, but it's the Didache. The Didache, which is the earliest document that we have, spells out exactly what should happen at baptism. And it clearly spells out what they refer to as a threefold immersion. And that, that I know I put that in the notes, it's there, and that's exactly what it means. Um, that that immersion is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So it's very early on, first, second centuries. Um, and there are, again, just to introduce, um, you know, this is a survey course, so we do a little bit about a lot of things, but there's a beautiful book called The Sacrament of Baptism uh, by Michael G. I'll spell his last name for anybody who wants to write it down. It's W-I-T-C-Z-A-K. A-K. A-K. And it's... Um, Liturgical Press, I'll put it in the, um, on the dashboard, but it's in what's called the Lexeronde um, series. Um, but, you know, if this were a course on baptism and we could do that, we, we could look at every aspect, but he, he, do, he absolutely addresses that. And um, so right there in the, the Didache. And then it's repeated again later on in the Apostolic tradition and then in the third century Tertullian remember his great baptismal homilies it's reiterated again um, so that 
is very early on. All right, so I hope that satisfies um, your thirst for um, knowledge about that. Um, and then finally, here's another question that came in about responses, actions, and movements for the assembly. This is a great question. Um, and it's very specific to the Our Father, the sign of peace, and a reverence to the cross in the um, procession. So um, basically the resources for this, um, it, um, it's certainly the general instruction of the Roman Missal that you will, in a few weeks, we'll be looking at closely. There's a whole section on this, um, which I used to use in teaching even kids, you know. Um, and then there is a book also uh, from LTP, um, Liturgy Training Publications, of the liturgy experience of ritual catechesis, all right? See, we need to know how to understand these things. So, because the liturgy is so rich in signs, symbols, uh, language, it's poetic language. So we can get so many meanings out of so many things, which it's so beautiful. But uh, to address the question uh, regarding um, the Our Father, um, there's no rubric for the person in the pew. There's no actual rubric for what we should be doing, but there's a liturgical answer to what we should be doing. Because you, you all know you see all different kinds of things during the Our Father. The proper gesture is hands folded, either this way or this way. That It's not holding hands. It's not the orons. That's the gesture of the presider, the priest celebrant. But the deacon, his instruction is hands folded during the Our Father. And the people, um, the assembly is supposed to mimic that of the deacon, particularly for the Our Father. So it's hands folded. But I've spoken to even the greatest liturgists in the world. And they say, if people in my parish are holding hands, I'm not going to stop them. Because some of these things have become such a tradition in a lot of places. But if you want to be really, uh, to know correctly, and if you're teaching, certainly, it's hands folded. This, is, this in itself is holding hands without holding hands. It, correct. That's where yeah. it comes from. So that I know. Yeah. And, you know, in on retreats or in particularly years ago, people will automatically do that. But in the liturgy, it's supposed to be hands folded. Carlos, you made it. Come on in and sit down. Um, we haven't even gotten to, well, we're still answering questions. We're gonna get through the Middle Ages tonight. <laughs> Kills us. But anyway, the sign of peace. This is a great, great question. Because again, you see so many things happening during the sign of peace. And with the pandemic, it, depending on which diocese you live in, we, we have omitted, let us offer each other the sign of peace. All right? Uh, because it involves touching. But the thing is, and I've been to two parishes during the pandemic here out on Long Island, and, you know, the priest is going right into the Lamb of God, as the directive says, and people are waving and doing all kinds of crazy things. This is the issue with that. And I'm not being, you know, I'm 
you in front of you, uh, three rows away. That was emphatic with the uh, revised edition of the Roman Missal in 2011. It was reiterated. Um, but it's not supposed to be, you know, this, you'll see this, you'll see that. That's not what it's meant. Before the communion, it's part of the communion rite to offer Christ peace, the peace that the world cannot give. And that it's a very ancient gesture. I've heard some people say with the pandemic, oh, I hope they never put it back in. Um, because it means so many different things to so many different people and it's not really done the way it's meant to be done. But the disturbing part for me during the pandemic is that people are missing out on the Lamb of God because they're busy waving to everybody in the church. So much so in the in the church where my husband is a musician, the pastor asked him to play a long introduction to the Lamb of God because people are not listening and they're doing it. And he doesn't want it to interrupt the prayer. So I hope that makes sense. But it's the directive in the germ is to the person directly next to you on either side. And that's it. That's it. It's not, you know, uh, sadly, but anyway. Um, and then uh, the other part of this question was in regard to reverence for the cross um, in the, um, the entrance procession. Um, there, to the best of my knowledge, and I could be wrong, I'm first to admit if I'm wrong, but to the best of my liturgical knowledge, there is no uh, particular gesture for this. I know when I've been to Mass in the Extraordinary Form that I do notice, and this is new for me, and um, that when the procession is coming down, people are either genuflecting or bowing, and I, that's just brand new to me. I, I'm not quite sure I understand it. But the important thing to know about the cross coming in procession is that we do that deliberately because the cross represents the paschal mystery that jesus died for us and that we follow the cross in every step of our lives so having the cross lead that entrance procession in is very very um significant uh, for us, that we follow the cross. We just, a couple of weeks ago, we had the Feast of the Triumph of the Cross. You know, we hold the cross as the place of glory. So, um, but as far as a particular gesture in our current directives, um, you know, we can go back and look at the germ, but I've studied that in the best of my knowledge, there is no gesture. That, that remember the entrance procession is meant in the Vatican II liturgy to gather us, you know, uh, in the extraordinary form, which is the, the, the mass of Trent that hopefully we'll get to tonight, but um, and I have my doubts, <laughs> um, which is okay. But you know, it might've been a different directive and you see that again is my 
I'm going to say a strong word. It's my objection to the extraordinary form that people are, um, could often become confused of what does the liturgy of our time from the Second Vatican Council, uh, what is it telling us to do? Uh, because I see very different things going on, a very different kind of a piety. And again, it's an observation, it's not a judgment. I, I choose often to go to extraordinary form for different reasons. However, I embrace the liturgy of the Second Vatican Council because that's the church of today, for better or for worse. Um, by that I mean whether we like it or not. I happen to like it. But I want to be aware of the extraordinary form, particularly in teaching, I need to know. Somebody had a hand up. I uh, did. Barbara. Barbara. On the um, entrance procession, what direction does the cross face and why? It faces moving forward. Yeah, forward. Forward, toward the altar. Because okay. that's it's, where we're all going. We're all it, going it, there. Our attention the, is on the altar. It's the opposite direction for the Dominican order. Interesting. So it's facing the people coming in. Oh, there must be a reason for that. Yeah. And again, religious communities have different, you know, uh, and they can do that. You know, I'd be curious to see. But... In the I'll liturgy, have to ask. Yeah, ask and let us know next week. But in the liturgy in general, the focus is the altar. I mean, in the liturgy, the altar represents Christ. Even though there's a tabernacle there, you know, and we'll see when we look at the Second Vatican Council that in in um, art and environment at the time after the council tabernacles were moved to eucharistic chapels but there's um more recently due to this um unawareness of the real presence among people putting tabernacles back in the main uh section in the sanctuary and i get that and that's perfectly fine but in the liturgy in the eucharistic liturgy the focus is the altar and the altar represents christ that we are around the altar, and that's going to come up later on. Uh, shift, uh, particularly as we entered into the uh, medieval period, this shift of uh, being further and further away from the altar. Because remember, as we read in Metzger, and I brought up early on, it was eating with Christ. And in the early church, they gathered around a table. Right, and then we'll see, uh, I'll make some reference to how architecture changed for different reasons, but gradually we moved further and further away from that altar, right? Remember I said early on in studying the history, you could study the history from different points of view. And one of them I noted the book, and I think it's on your bibliography, from age to age. And this is Father Ed Foley, and he actually studies the history from the lens of art and architecture. And, and he uses that to explain what was happening liturgically by the change in the space. 
Um, and that's one of the things that changed from being around a table to being far away from the altar that eventually was put up against the wall with barriers and rails and screens that we weren't even there. So, uh, so anyway, um, I hope I answered all your questions, but keep them coming because it's, it's really great. So, um, we're going to move on and we're going to do the best we can and eventually we'll catch up. Are you okay? Okay. Eventually we will catch up, I promise. All right? You got a cramp? It's okay. It's from driving. Yeah, I get it. My husband my husband gets leg cramps like that. So just walk around, do we have to do rock? So what I want, this is my plan for tonight. And I know the page numbers on your papers are very small but they're there on page three i have a plan for tonight and it may work and it may not and if it doesn't i'm not going to get upset okay all right so let me get this stuff out of the way uh but my plan is and remember we're working in broad strokes here it's not a course on the history of the liturgy and I want to get away from the history of the liturgy as fast as I can. I want to get to practice and, and the church, contemporary church teaching. I want to get to that. All right? All right? So I, I'm working in broad strokes. I'm going to try not to be so detailed. If you want the details, you can go to Metzger and other resources uh, that I can mention for you. But basically, I just want to try to get, uh, start with the fourth century, which is very important to understand for what we're doing today. Because as you're gonna see, it was the golden age and a lot of great things happened that the church um, slowly moved away from. Um, and some people tried to capture that spirit of the fourth century and the Second Vatican Council definitely did, particularly regard to the catechumenate. And I will uh, be mentioning the catechumenate particularly um, uh, when I talk about that. Then uh, the Middle Ages or the um, medieval period, um, I just want to bring some certain things to your attention and then i'm going to uh talk about there's not a lot to say liturgically about the council of trent because a, there's not a lot that happened liturgically there's just a few things and i have a beautiful book um called what happened at trent that i'll talk more about when we get to it and there's very little on liturgical reform they were concerned with other things but so that's the plan and let's see how we do. It's 10 to eight. Let me see what we can do between now and 8.15 and um, uh, we'll see what happens. All right, sounds good. You're all good here? All right, you're all good over there. How about those in large theology? You good? I love it, I love it. Okay, so. Uh, I don't go on a road trip myself because <laughs> as you can see when I answer a question I could just teach a whole night on that so <clears throat> in the fourth century
whole session talking about the contemporary catechumenate, but it all comes from the fourth century. What we do today with the rite of Christian initiation of adults. By the way, just a little footnote, if you're looking at the USCCB, the rite of Christian initiation of adults, commonly known as the RCIA, is soon to be the OCIA, the Order of Christian Initiation of Adults. The United States bishops are voting on this in November. Uh, they did a, a revision of the 1988 uh, version of the RCIA. They did a revision, which is mostly transa translation issues, a revision of the national statutes. This will make sense to you if in a couple of weeks, but my point here is just to let you know, creating an awareness that the, um, the bishops will be voting on this, and then a revised, not a new, we have to be careful of our language, it's not new, it's revised, just like the Roman Missal. Because remember in 2011, with the revision of the Roman Missal, the directive was that all of the rites of the church would be revised so that the translation of the prayers is reflective of what's called a formal uh, translation rather than a dynamic translation. So I just throw that out so you're aware of it when it comes. Um, and that is going to be an opportunity, like everything else, to revitalize, to re-educate, to catechize about the particular rite of the church. So. Um, I'm going to be talking a, bit, a little bit about these origins of the catechumenate because it was such a major focus during the early church. Um, I recognize that this fourth chapter of Metzger was a long chapter and it had a lot of details, but I'm just picking out some important liturgical implications um from it but certainly uh, i'm trusting that you're you read it or you will read it to fill in the, the blanks of what we're talking about um but the important thing to remember about this time is it's a new period for the study of the liturgy the fourth century is actually a new era where we see Christianity is now really interfacing with the secular culture, all right? I alluded to that a little bit last time as we moved into the even the second and third as it, uh, it moved out of Palestine uh, into uh, non-Jewish areas, but it's really predominant now. So this is a time where the liturgy is influenced by pagan culture, okay? And the reason for this is, I just wanna make sure I'm following my outline here. The reason is the end of persecution, all right? We had the, with Constantine, the, um, he was converted to Christianity. So we have what's called the Edict of Milan in 313, um, and Christianity is recognized, uh, it's made legal. Uh, so um, there, it's the end of the age of persecution of the Christians. 
and it actually becomes the religion of the empire, um, and it's actually beneficial for people to become Christian. So um, why I'm bringing this up as um, a result of this interfacing with the secular culture is because you now have people becoming Christian who, ha who don't have that background of Judaism. And that's the shift. Because if you remember from the earliest centuries, the early converts to Christianity were Jewish. So they, they had a religious background. That's no longer the case. So what's happening now at the, the end of persecution, there's massive conversions. Um, and this is what impacts further development of the catechumenate, all right? Um, so as Christian communities grew and liturgical celebrations were also going to see, they needed more organization and regulation because we're now not dealing with a small Christian community. We're dealing with a lot of people. And in anything, when there's a lot of people, you know you need more organization. All right, so this is the beginning of that, that we're, we're going to see, all right? Um, so on one of your slides, I think it's, I can't even read that number at the bottom. Yikes, I think it's six. There's a, of your PowerPoint, there is a little diagram of a basilica and I did have a beautiful picture of a basilica, but it didn't print out on mine. So it probably didn't print out on yours, but I have it in front of me on my computer. Yeah, you got it. Uh, my, my, you got it? It didn't on mine. I'm so glad it did on yours. Um, yeah, so anyway, I want to talk about that. And um, Metzger talks about it, but this is significant. Um, because as Christianity grew, there was a need for more space. Remember, they were meeting in people's homes, right? But now there's too many people, so they need more space. Um, so they move away from the house church. And from what I, and my research shows me, the house church didn't die out completely. And you have to remember, as with all change, even in our contemporary church, it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, 50 plus years after the Second Vatican Council, we're still waiting <laughs> for some things to, you know, take hold. So it was the same thing um, back then. It did, did, didn't mean that everybody was doing this. But in general, this is again, broad strokes, in general. Um, and this movement to the Basilica, because the Basilica is like a political building, a secular building that's borrowed to use for Christian worship. But so here, as Metzger points out, we really can see the um, influence of the culture seeping in here, all right? Because just um, in general, uh, basilica, uh, the word itself meant royal building. It was like a palace, and you can see that from the picture that I gave you. Um, or another, um, in a different book than Metzger, I saw the phrase, Hall of the King. 
So there's a real, again, this interfacing with culture here, but the church is using it. And the other thing where the secular culture seeps in here with these basilicas, there's a lot of influence with the art and the architecture and particularly from wealthy benefactors that had a say in what was going to be in these basilicas. But the communities eventually adapted this type of building. And we know all you have to do is look at um, the basilicas in Rome to see how um, the, the church adapted these types of buildings um, because they inspired how the churches were constructed up until the Middle Ages. Uh, there was another, um, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Another diagram that I wanted to put into your notes, but I couldn't get it in. But Ed Foley gives it um, in his book because he has a lot of diagrams and he really shows a progression by diagrams of architecture, because he looks at history, remember, through the lens of architecture. But he has one where the Christian community eventually, that's where the uh, assembly is, is present, they added transepts, all right? And so it eventually took that cruciform uh, as we see in churches today. I don't know if you've ever seen an aerial view of St. Patrick's Cathedral, but if you Google it, I've seen it, and you can clearly see the cross, which is so beautiful. But that's the influence of these um, ancient basilicas and how they were built. Um, so I, I just find that really interesting. But that. And it is a course that we do offer as an elective art and environment and Christian worship, where you actually look at this through that lens, of, which is uh, very interesting. I think we might be offering it maybe in the summer. We, we have a little talk about it. We're discussing our summer, and we haven't offered it in a while, but it, it would be out there. All right? So far, so good? Making sense? Okay. And again, broad strokes. I, I'm not going to go into detail on this. So basically what I want to get at here is the characteristics of the time. Um, we see people becoming Christian for different reasons. You know, and again, going back to the earliest, uh, first century, second century, people were becoming Christian because they were having an experience of Jesus Christ in their life. You know, and they were risking everything to become Christian. That's not the case here. So people are becoming Christian for all kinds of reasons. And again, fast forward to today. If any of you have had experience with the RCIA, oh, I want to get married in the church. I want to be a godparent. I want to be a sponsor, etc. Again, not a judgment on anybody. Any reason is good reason as long as it deepens. That's what I, I usually teach. Uh, people who work in that ministry. Um, so we, we see that um, in our contemporary church, that um, it's clearly not always this deep conversion to Christ. It does eventually.
really grow into that for a lot of people, for a lot of people, and that's our hope. That's why any reason is a good reason as long as it develops. But, but the characteristics of the time is that's what we're seeing. For whether it's political reasons or just because it's the trend to be Christian, we have these mass conversions. So the so what happens is there we have to have adaptations on how we catechize because we no longer can take for granted that they have this experience of the living God as the Jewish people did in the first centuries. So there's a the different approach to catechesis um, during this period. Um, and as we will see, this whole idea of liturgical catechesis, or what we'll see is called mystagogical catechesis, is very prevalent during this time. We'll see that in a couple of more slides. Uh, we're also going to see, as a result of large numbers, um, the phrase that comes up uh, is from a question that I addressed last week of what Metzger calls liturgical institutions. That's repeated, that whole idea. As the church gets bigger, we have to have more regulation on these liturgical institutions. So we're going to see a beginning of unity in rituals, all right? That because there's so many communities uh, springing up um, in large number that everybody uh, come, they come to the conclusion that everybody can't be doing something different. So there's um, a slow movement toward a unity of how people are worshiping, and it starts here. But, um, and the last thing you see under characteristics, there is still this idea of striving to keep connection with the apostolic church. That always has to be primary. And even to this day, you know, we are one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And so it's wonderful that through the centuries that there has always been this goal to stay connected to the apostolic is amazing. I once, um, I remember how years ago, 25, maybe even 35 years ago, a, a casual conversation with a priest that was visiting my parish that I belonged to in Glen Cove at the time from um, studying at the um, North American College in Rome. But just, I don't even remember the whole conversation, but he said, I just know that we belong to the one true church because so much has lasted through all these centuries. Um, of so many things uh, happening, but one thing that has lasted is this apostolic tradition. And, and one place we see that very clearly is in the ordination rites. And it always strikes me that apostolic secession um, that we experience in and through ritual prayer in our, in our uh, ordination rites, both ordination to the priesthood and the permanent diaconate. We, we, we see it, we feel it very clearly, for me anyway, there. And it's always so significant uh, to me as well. But uh, there was a political climate 
And uh, I'm not going to get too heavy into this. If you're interested, uh, Metzger goes into it in detail. It's just important to bring up uh, how we have this division of the Roman Empire, um, the fall of Rome, uh, and um, we have Emperor Justinian in the 6th century that really tries to restore some kind of uh, unity. Um, and I think it's just worth saying that we end up with four great patriarchs here in the East. Um, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. And we've all heard those names. I can remember when I worked for the Diocese of Rockville Center, we had a little boy who was baptized um, in the Antioch Rite. And I can remember our now Bishop Brennan, who I worked with then, Father Brennan, saying that's one of our most ancient, ancient um, rites. And this little boy had been baptized and confirmed and just needed to come into full communion with the Roman Catholic Church. So we've all heard these names in scripture and everything, but this is where it comes from, the political climate of the time. And what's significant for the liturgy is that the common language of the empire is Greek. And I mentioned that before, because originally liturgy was in Greek. And then we have, again, this slow, um, slow evolution where we have in Rome, which is the only uh, patriarchate in the West because of this division in the fall and the language here is Latin. And here's where we have the origin of the Roman, the Latin church, the Latin church. It comes right from here, fourth, fifth, fifth, sixth century. See, it, it's very hard when we look at the history to put clear boundaries because there is, you know, this slow gradual movement. Um, but um, again, if we have the broad strokes and approximate time frame, um, we're still early on here. Um, it's important to know. But here's where we have the Latin rites come from here now. So basically, again, to just summarize, after persecution, the age of persecution, which we're no longer in, it's legal to become Christian. We have expansion of Christian communities, reorganization, because we need that, because it's getting larger. And with that comes reform. Uh, and we, we will um, definitely see that. Everything I've mentioned, Metzger goes into detail on. And that's, I'm going to rely on you to really read that chapter deeply. I did myself. And again, we could have spent 14 weeks on that chapter and we can't. Um, so I had to pick and choose uh, what we would what we would do. And each, with each, um, you're good. Let me check in. All there, thumbs up from everybody, my friends in large theology. You're all good? Great. Okay. Um, we've looked at sources. What are the sources that we have that we can look at? And Metzger, in every chapter, uh, with every
every century, with every uh, era, he has pointed out, and he talks about these liturgical institutions. Again, church orders or rites, he talks about. Homilies, we have homilies that have been discovered. Like I mentioned last time, Tertullian's homily on baptism gives us a clear catechesis of what baptism is. Uh, we have catechesis itself. What did it look like? And, and I'm going to go through a little bit uh, with you on that because it's important. We have letters that people wrote. Letters are so important. You know, now we have email that get lost. You know, uh, where would uh, my mother, and I'm going back here, she's been dead over 30 years, but she didn't live that far from us, but she always wrote us letters. And she wrote letters to my kids, cards. And she once said to me, because we were all, you know, we were young and my sister and I would say, what is she writing us letters for? You know, we're going to see her like in three days. But you know what she wrote in one of those letters? And I'll never forget. She wrote, where would we be without St. Paul's letters? So she really saw the significance. And to this, now I'm so happy to have those letters. And when I get an email from anybody that I really cherish, I make sure I print it out and stick it in my journal. I want it. I want paper, you know? So I do that. But a lot may be lost in our time because of that. But we back then, we had letters that people wrote to each other, and we had the stories they told. And hopefully, again, I, again, and this, I was telling Father Ernest, um, our, our uh, chair of the liturgy department at uh, St. Joseph's, that it wasn't planned, but I keep making all these connections to what we do now and what we were doing then. But it's so important to tell the stories because if we don't, a lot of this will get lost. So no matter, you know, as good witnesses and whatever chance we have, tell the stories, you know? Um, it's so important. We had it as an early source, and we can have it as a source now. You know, um, uh, I have a, a young granddaughter. She's nine, and she's petrified of thunderstorms. And, you know, we've had flash flooding and all that. And my daughter-in-law told me, and I was so thrilled because with the ramifications of Hurricane Ida, we, up where I live, up here, we had terrible floods. And she was very nervous. She sat there with her mom and she said, but Nana told me to say my prayers. I thought that was so great because I said, Emery, don't be afraid. Trust in God. And when you are afraid, say your prayers. And so she relayed that. So see, I could have been afraid to say that, but I thought, no way. You know, I wanted her to know, say your prayers, trust in God. And she said it to her mother. And then they both had a, like a moment, a powerful moment. That's telling the story. And that will live on in families and with people that we meet. So I think it's, it's very powerful. But we had it back then. And we need to continue to tell the stories. Tell the story of Jesus um, whenever we can. So I am watching the time because I know we got to get up and stretch. Um, but let me just finish with this, um, uh, the sources. This is another source that comes up now. I actually bought it, and, and Kindle edition.
information uh, and it's on my iPad because I was curious because I was not um, really um, uh, that much aware of it. But this is um, what's called the Apostolic Constitution. This is new for this uh, time period. Um, and it really shows the development of the tradition. What is significant here in this collection, it, it reworks the other sources that we talked about from the earliest centuries, the Scalia, the Didache, and the tradition. Again, I apologize for my typographical errors on my PowerPoint. I go over them 10 times and I still don't pick them all up, but that's okay. Right, so that, that this is a resource, and the Kindle edition, if you're interested in looking at it, I wanted to have it, it, it was 99 cents on Amazon. Um, but again, um, it's interesting to say, in the same way that we revised documents, they did it then too. They took these earliest documents and they revised them, and they put them into this collection called the Apostolic Constitution which I really think is really interesting um, as well. Okay, I'm just bad, I'm not following my notes. Um, it's good and it's bad, but whatever. But um, it just it's not on your PowerPoint, but just for some commentary before we take the break. Um, this collection of traditions from the apostles, remember, those early documents was assembled by Clement of Rome. And from my research, it tells me that he was a companion of St. Peter. And Peter was close, very close. So, um, it, so this reworking of earlier documents to me is significant because it's showing us what well, we're doing the same thing now. You know, when we had the revisions of the Roman Mystical in 2011, uh, if you remember, people, blogs were exploding, you know, it was crazy. But what people didn't realize, it was the third edition, we had revised it, uh, this was the third time since 1969, since the Second Vatican Council, and surprise, surprise, don't, it will be revised again. So the same thing happened in the early church. So I think it comforts us. And there's a book, and it might be on your bibliography, by Keith Peckler's called The Genius of the Roman Rite. And that's exactly what he talks about. How we, we didn't leave it the same. We revised. We revised as needed all throughout history of the church. So uh, that being said, I think we're moving along pretty good. Um, next, here's where I'm going to talk about catechesis and preaching. So why don't we take like a 10-minute break? Is that enough? Just get up, walk around, get a drink, whatever, and we'll come back at, it's 8.18, so like 8.32, the latest.
the midterm, it's going to be take home as noted on your syllabus, but I will put it in files two weeks before it's due. Um, so, you know, if you have any questions about it, but it, I will just tell you this, uh, that it'll be focusing on Metzger, uh, you know, the history part that we just, that'll be the focus. Would you also notify us that you put it in? Yes, I try every time I put something in files, I put it on the dashboard to tell you, you know, in popularly saying it's there. So absolutely, good, I will, all right? Excellent, all right. Okay, so let's uh, move on. As long as we're all here, let's see if we can get through. What's that? I'm sorry, can you hear me? You're cold? Do you, is that, how does everybody feel? The AC is on. Do you want it off? Let me know. Okay, you know, I get all bothered. <laughs> Okay. Just, uh, okay. So let's try to by 9:30 cuz I know that we've got to be out of this building. But let me um timer going and let's move on to the section on catechesis and preaching. Uh, Anthony, I want to see you. I can't see you. Where are you? There you are. Okay. Interesting how you brought up, brought this up. Well, it's right here in Metzger. But um, the important thing to know, as I mentioned earlier on, this period of time is really called the golden age of patristics. In other words, patristics means the early church. Um, we have a lot to learn and take from this period of time and we're going to see elements of the characteristics excuse me particularly when we look at the documents of vatican ii and um the characteristics of the contemporary church we've learned a lot by discovering uh these sources as metzger points out so we have a lot to learn from this golden age. And as I noted, here is where you hear very often about the fathers of the church. Well, here's where they come from. And I just listed a couple of them. Saint Augustine, as you all know, he has an interesting life of, you know, how his mother prayed for his conversion. And he was a catechumen for 30 plus years before he was even baptized. And then, you know, he's ordained shortly after and then becomes bishop. Um, but then John Chrysostom of Antioch, which I mentioned before, and, uh, he also was associated with Constantinople and then St. Basil of Cappadocia. So when you hear about the fathers of the church, and believe me, all you have to do is go to the library or Google and you'll, um, so many commentaries on uh, everything you want to know you can find. Um, so that's um, just uh, important for you to know. Um, from Jerusalem, here's another source. I'm on page 14 of the PowerPoint. Um, this 
protocatechesis and the five mystagogical catechesis of Cyril of Jerusalem. I don't know if you noticed that catechesis is spelled differently in the earlier church with the, I, I'm not sure about that, whether it means the plural E-S-E-S -E and E-S-I-S, -S, how it we is, spell it today. It, it is plural. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought, but it can be confusing. Uh, but I just wanted to point that out. If you were confused, like I was the first time I read it, and then I figured out it's like thesis. The plural is um, spelt that way as well. So anyway, this is a very interesting concept. Mystagogical catechesis. Um, and I want you just to be aware of it. Uh, I mentioned it once before. Um, I also mentioned that when Jackie... Um, um, she's writing her thesis right now on the Sacrament of Confirmation, but she's using that as her lens, right? A mystagogical approach. In other words, looking back at. In other words, reflection. And this is something, if you're familiar with the RCIA, you know there's a period called mystagogy where the newly baptized are reflecting back on their experience of the sacraments or the mysteries, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. This should be a way of life for all of us. Mystagogy is not just about the RCIA. And we get this from um, the earl this early period where reflection on the mysteries, on the prayers, on the rites, on everything that was happening should be a way of life. So catechesis, particularly this uh, Cyril of Jerusalem, who was a great, what's called a mystagogue, uh, which is somebody who is a catechist, who is uh, reflecting back on these uh, mysteries. Um, it's something that we should all do. We should uh, just take a Eucharistic prayer and reflect on it, um, contemplate it, uh, make it our own. Uh, think about what it is calling me to. What are we doing? As this weeks ago, time we leave the celebration of the Eucharist, we should be changed. And we can only be changed if we take that time to reflect. It's so important. and. We have to show people how to do that. We have to talk about it. People, this isn't something that comes naturally. Yes, Carlos. Um, we're having a retreat uh, for, uh, we're having a retreat, so now that you, you know, talked about reflection, it's a good, now that, you know, it's important to reflect also, but the retreat is good for reflection. Exactly, Carlos just mentioning, a, like a retreat could be focused on this, that you can have a retreat focusing on a particular uh, particular prayers of the liturgy, uh, any liturgy. Uh, remember, liturgy is not just the celebration of the Eucharist, baptism, confirmation, ordination, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that we should always, um, they did this more naturally in the early church, uh, but we should be making it a way of life that we're always reflective of the prayers. And um, this was very uh, common 
to in the catechumenate. Uh, it was used, um, this proto-catechesis and the five mystagogical catechesis of Cyril was used for the instruction of the catechumens. Catechumens were the people preparing for baptism. Um, and mystagogical catechesis, the sources, rich sources are uh, John Chrysostom, Theodore of Moswepsia, I never can say that name, but it's very interesting, and Ambrose of Milan, the great mystagogues. And when we fast forward to the contemporary church, we're all called to be mystagogues, um, uh, reflective teachers um, of the mysteries of our faith. Uh, we're all called to that. Um, and we're, we need to know what existed early on. Um, and this is very, very uh, predominant in training for the rites of Christian initiation in our time. Um, I've done some national conferences and talked about the great mystagogues and who are the mystagogues in your parish, uh, trying to use that ancient language um, that is predominant in the RCIA as well. Um, so let me just say that um, mystagogical catechesis, when we talk about that, is very similar to what I referred to in another class as liturgical catechesis. Catechesis that looks back on the liturgy and reflects on it. So it's very similar, but um, it's something that um, many people are not aware of, that we should be doing it. That remember, um, catechesis, uh, liturgical catechesis refers to catechesis toward the liturgy, the catechesis that the liturgy itself, by virtue of just praying it, it teaches us something, and then reflection, and that's what we're talking about here. The, and, uh, and the important thing to understand, in the early church and with the contemporary rite of Christian initiation of adults, if implemented properly, you don't really teach catechumens about sacraments, for example, the way we teach children in catechetical programs. What I mean by that, if a, if a second grader seven-year-old is going to uh, celebrate their first reconciliation. You know, we have all this, what we call um, sacramental preparation. Um, and we teach them about the sacrament, all right? That is not the approach of the early church. It's not the approach in the RCIA. Reconciliation is a bad example because in the RCIA, that would come after. So let's say Eucharist or confirmation. We spend a lot of time um, in our catechetical programs um, teaching about before the celebration. The real teaching should happen after they experience the ritual. That's what happened early. But these rituals, what was referred to as the mysteries, were secret. They weren't shared. So for example, the catechumens, um, their um, catechesis 
dealt with a lot of things, particularly scripture, uh, the prayers of the um, the first part of Mass, the Liturgy of the Word, which we now call it. But it did not consist of, well, let me teach you about baptism. That happened after they experienced baptism. And that's the way it's supposed to be in our contemporary rite of Christian initiation of adults. And let me give you a clear example so that this somehow resonates, a contemporary example. Um, 20 plus years ago, maybe even longer, uh, I had one catechumen in the parish. Uh, he was fully initiated at the Easter Vigil. The Monday night after Easter, um, a group of us met with him and I said to him, Peter, based on your experience Saturday night of baptism confirmation in the Eucharist, can you tell me what a sacrament is? And without skipping a beat, he said, I met Jesus Christ. That's mystagogical catechesis. By his experience, what did you learn? You see, we, we, we implemented the RCIA according to the church's vision where we didn't teach him about every sacrament. Baptism means, confirmation means. That came afterwards and that's reflection on. We all need to do that. Think about you know, tonight, before you go to sleep, lay in bed and think about your own confirmation. Reflect on it. I did that once when I was editing and revising um, a textbook for a publishing company for children for confirmation. I reflected on it saying, I have this. Let me, let me really, really reflect on these gifts of the Holy Spirit that I have we forget and very every once in a while we should reflect on it that's mystagogical catechesis you see and we can do that so well with other people and jackie is going to write a great carlos no pressure no pressure yeah. no i just wanted to say that um that uh like we quick we're too quick to give love on the confirmation to it for example after they do the confirmation, like we see a whole bunch of stuff coming to church and whatever, it's like the churches are empty again. But I, I just, I'm realizing that like we, we're too quick to give up on them because they're actually just beginning to live. It, it, it seems because we say that they're soldiers now, okay? You're confirmed now you're a soldier, but you can't really be a soldier. You're actually like just, uh, you're actually not a real soldier. You actually just enter basic training. That's what you should be. Yeah, Con confirmation is not a destination. You know, and we're going to talk more about this when we take apart the sacraments of initiation. Confirmation is a beginning, not an end. And we've got it totally wrong um, in our, our church. What we, In other words, what I mean by that is what we do practically does not work. And everybody who's an expert in catechesis will tell you that, bishops that I know included that have got up publicly i know at our seminary and said what we do doesn't work think outside the box and we have all the answers right here and we need to figure out how to better do that and and again not to put jackie on the spot that's what she's going to do in a thesis because that's 
that's what she's thinking about. That's what she's thinking about. So, <laughs> so anyway, I, I hope the idea, all I want you to do is have an idea of mystagogical catechesis. It was, it was prevalent in the early church, particularly during this beautiful age, a golden age of patristics. And it was so important and we need to reconnect with it in our time. And again, it can be done. Like that gentleman after taking a liturgy course said, I never knew I was a celebrator. We, we need to reflect on it. Every time we go to mass, every time we pray, whatever the case may be, retreat is an excellent opportunity to put it all together. What does this mean for my life? But again, I use Eucharist as an example. Whether we go every day or every Sunday, it should change us. And it will only change us when we reflect on it. And we need to give ourselves the time to do it. And we need to help others do it. But just basically, I always used to teach parents in the car on the way home from church. Talk to your kids and ask them, what did you experience? Let's talk about what we just did. That's all it takes. It doesn't have, it can be as simple as that. And that was my advice to busy parents. Talk about it. Right. First, first thing you got to tell them, you can put up their friggin' cell phones. <laughs> yeah. No you cell have no phones. idea. Standing up at the altar, looking mm -hmm. down during the mass itself, mm -hmm. the number of people on their cell phones. Oh, it's terrible. It's awful. It, it really is. And we almost stopped mass one time and told them that we weren't going on any further until they put them up. Well, the only thing right now with the phones is like I have the um, I have all the readings on my phone because we don't have books. Right. A lot. That's pandemic time. Right. And a lot of parishes created um, downloadable programs when we couldn't have things and people mm -hmm. had them on their phones as well. Yeah. But but in general, you do find people. Uh, I think I might have told you last week, I was at weekday mass a couple of weeks ago and I saw somebody during mass take out a bottle of water. Now maybe he had a health problem, but it's just not, I don't think it's the place. We're not at a ball game, you know, I, I, not a judgment, but an observation. But Pope Francis has mentioned, you know, uh, people go to see the Pope and all they want to do is take pictures. I would keep that memory in my heart. I, and I would tell people this with sacraments, whether it's a wedding or a first communion confirmation, the minute you flick a camera, you're out of the prayer. You are no longer focused on the prayer. People need to hear that. You know, it's, 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 it's a problem in our time as well. But I, I have the readings on my phone as well. Um, talk about computer games. Yeah. I know. Rob is talking about people look checking their texts and playing games, etc. You know, I will talk about it when we talk more about the general instruction. But technically, along these lines, we should be reading the readings before we go and listening to the proclamation, not reading when we're there. That's just a little footnote to keep in mind. Technically, that's what the church asks. 
that we are not reading along. But I understand people um, hearing problems or the diction of the proclaimer. There are several that I never criticize any longer. Remember, I don't want you to be liturgical critics. I, I no longer do, but I do say to people, you should read and pray with it before you go. And and then when you listen to it proclaimed, it's a whole different thing. It's a whole different, it's a different, reading and listening is two different things. So I just offer that um, to you. That's a little liturgical um, thing. Okay, so. Other sources, I mentioned already before, there were letters, and in particular, there were letters between bishops, right, um, that treated liturgical questions like we're talking about here, you know, your notes someday, somebody is going to find your notebook and say, wow, this is what they were doing in New York in 2021, you know. Um, but there's this other source called the Eucologia, uh, which was a manual or a service book. Remember earlier I said we're going to see more regulation. Well, they started to create now manuals so that they could be distributed to all the various communities so everybody was praying in somewhat the same way. So these manuals contain Eucharistic prayers or nations by deacons. Uh, that's right out of Metzger uh, there. Um, and Metzger points out that there was no way really of knowing how they were used. He's just pointing out that these sources existed and we have discovered them uh, in recent times. Um, we also have on liturgical celebrations from the end of the 5th century written, this isn't on your notes, just some of my own commentary, um, uh, written by a Greek theologian who went by the name Dionysus, and we've heard that name in scripture. Uh, Paul Turner, in his book, The Hallelujah Highway, has a whole chapter on him, and he says, he tells us that we don't really know if that was his real name. <laughs> However, he borrowed the name, Paul Turner, from his research has discovered, he borrowed the name from a disciple of St. Paul, and the Acts of the Apostles makes some reference to it. Um, so a little point of information. Um, we also have, this is on your screen, this other source called Ecclesiastical Hierarchy. And this um, consisted of seven chapters that included information on baptism in the same way the Didache did in the apostolic tradition. See, we move on and we continue to have these sources that are reflective of what came before, but updated. Um, there's primary interest um, on the baptismal ritual in Syria during the sixth century. Um, and again, this is all in Metzger, uh, in very nice readable, I think, uh, format. 
Um, but he tells us that there was a love of transcendent reality that moves a person towards baptism. That's an ideal. And that wasn't always the case during this time of interfacing with the secular age. But ideally, there was, the, there was this love of the transcendent, you know, which we're, we wouldn't be here if we didn't have that, all of us, right? Um, and also, there's a note that the goal of baptism is a deeper participation in union with God. That's something we can all reflect on, because I'm venture to say, we uh, and I could be wrong, tell me if I'm wrong, were, were we all baptized as infants? Not you, uh, so you remember. Awesome, we have Govinda here who remembers. So it's clear, there's a lot of envy around people like you, that people wish they remembered, but I always remind them, but you have the same thing, but you, you don't think about it or reflect on it. One of the things, thank you for telling me that, that's great. But one of the things we should do in regard to this, and I've done this in recent years, know the date of your baptism. That's your feast day, know it, you know? I put it on my calendar because I don't want to forget. But we should know it. We should pray. We. I thank my parents for bringing me to the church. Uh, when I used to work in Rockville Center, I actually used to pass the church in Hempstead where I was baptized, and I could just see the steeple. And I used to, every day, look at that steeple in the distance and say a prayer thanking my parents for bringing me there on that hot July day. There's another reason for it too. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I can't tell you how many times somebody has called me and said, I'm going to be getting married. I need a copy of my baptismal records and so forth. And I said, when you're baptized? They don't know. They said, I don't have a clue. And I said, I've got a hundred years of books right. here. And I'm not going to go through the whole hundred pages. Check with your mother, find out where you were baptized. Approximately, <laughs> then we'll go from there. That's good for you. See, that's a practical thing. But we, we should know for spiritual reasons, because we all have what every person who is baptized as an adult, um, we've all got it. I use the comparison when I hear people in after these individuals, they say, oh, wow, look at what they have. I have to remind them that they have it too. And I use the analogy, if you're an old married couple, say 50 years, and you go to a wedding of a young couple, you're like, oh, I say, you've got that. How often do you think about it? You've got that and you're living it out every single day. And the point is, we're all living out our baptism, which is deeper participation in the union of God. And guess what? Another little footnote here. Why are there holy water fonts? pre-pandemic, some of them are back, at the entrance of a church. Anybody know? To remind us of our baptism. Bravo. Exactly. Exactly. That's our entrance. There's a church here, out here in um, South Huntington, um, St. Elizabeth's in Melville. 
there's one way into the church. You can go out several entr entrances, you know it? It's right by your school. But there's one entrance. There's a gathering space and then one entrance that everybody has to go in. Do you know what's right there? The baptismal font, it's a pool. It's right there. And they particularly designed it that way that everybody who goes to celebrate the Eucharist is reminded of their baptism. That's a beautiful thing. That's using uh, symbols very richly. Uh, a holy water font doesn't speak as loudly as passing by the baptismal font, you know? So very, 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 very rich. All right, I gotta move on. Uh, I'll give you a chance for questions at the end, but if you have a burning thing, just stop me. So, um, the principal form of catechesis at this time was the proclamation of the scripture, the liturgy of the word. That was the principal form. That's where the catechumens were catechized when they went to mass, not class on Wednesday night, when they came and gathered with the assembly, we see this in the RCIA. And when we get to that, I'll make it crystal clear. And here, catechumens attended only the first part of the liturgy. Uh, we used to refer to it as the mass of the catechumens, but for us, it's the liturgy of the word. And they were dismissed. They were dismissed um, afterwards. They were dismissed to go and pray. Um, and that's important for you to keep in mind for when we talk about the contemporary right, because there's a lot of controversy about the dismissal of catechumens in our day. But we'll, we'll talk more about that. But the important thing here is that there is evidence of the dismissal of the catechumens as far back as we're talking about. So what we're doing in the contemporary church with our catechumens is not new. It's, it's tradition at its best, all right? But a lot of people don't, don't know that. And I'm gonna teach you so that you all at least know it. Um, the next thing I have up here, this is a really important resource. I have a copy, it's a different edition than I have up there. Ageria's Travels. Every good liturgist owns a copy of this. Um, Ageria was a nun from Spain and she went on pilgrimage to Jerusalem um, for several years, um, I have read, but her diary um, or her journal uh, mostly is accounts of the liturgies of Holy Week in Jerusalem. And she makes, in the fourth century, and she makes a lot of reference to what was going on with catechumens, newly baptized, etc. But this is really an important resource if you want to learn about the history of particularly Holy Week. This was, when I wrote my dissertation, I, I, I know I told you I wrote on the Paschal Triduum. This resource had a terrific influence on my own research, and I needed to have a metaphor that I used throughout my writing. And Ageria provided it because when I read her, she says to her sisters, I am on pilgrimage. So I used that metaphor that during liturgy, 
analogy, but specifically the Paschal Triduum in my case, we are on a ritual pilgrimage. A ritual pilgrimage. Think about that. That's a really rich uh, metaphor to think about, that every time we are uh, participating in the celebration, we are we are on pilgrimage, just like we have stepped onto holy ground in Lourdes or Magigoria or wherever. We have stepped Rome, we have stepped onto holy ground. Think about that. I used it as my metaphor. And then I went on to refer to it as a pilgrimage of hope. Well, I sure hope the celebration of the Eucharist every Sunday is a pilgrimage of hope for you all. Uh, but that's what I, Egeria, uh contributes, but it's very, 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 very uh, rich reading uh, for you to ha have um, as well. All right, so. So um, the catechumenate of the fourth century. Um, again, I mentioned that this was the golden age of patristics or resources, but it's also considered the golden age of the catechumenate and the baptismal liturgy. Um, and it's the origin of the present day restored right that we know of as the RCIA, the right of Christian initiation of adults. And we will have a session on that. Um, I also teach a course on that because, uh, and 14 weeks is barely enough to even get through it. That's how rich it is. Um, I, each, I also teach that course to our seminarians as well. In, um, uh, Robert Ruggiero, he'll have the pleasure of having it next semester. Um, but anyway, uh, I just want to bring it to your attention, uh, particularly because the RCIA, as we know it today, is nothing new. And many people think it's new. It's a restored right. Because as we'll see in Sacrosanctum Concilium, uh, the document on the liturgy from the Second Vatican Council had called for the restoration of the catechumenate, the ancient catechumenate. That's, I forget if it's paragraph 64, 65, I can't remember. But it, it, it calls for it. And a working group was put together at the time after the council, and they did. They restored it. And we have it. And as I mentioned before, it's currently under revision. Uh, for translation purposes. So, as I mentioned earlier during this time, uh, the catechumenate becomes very important and the development of it because of these mass conversions, uh, because it's the end of persecution. Um, and it's also important to realize that during this time, baptism, or I, it's more accurate to say full initiation into the church at this time included baptism and anointing after baptism and anointing with chrism and holy communion just note that it wasn't called confirmation yet we go through a lot of centuries before that name confirmation is attached to that anointing with chrism so the point here to recognize that i want you to take from this is that initiation into the church was one event, one event, not three. Like we have, if you're baptized as an infant, it's bap infant baptism, Holy Communion at around age seven, and then confirmation is all over the place. 
and town law says it can be anywhere from age 12 to 16. Um, and it depends on your diocese where it is. Uh, that's a conversation for another class or session. I'll bring it up when we do talk about confirmation of what Rome envisions, but not, not, not tonight. But the, what I want you to take away from here is that um, it was one event and you were initiated through baptism, threefold immersion, anointing with chrism by the bishop and receiving Holy Communion, one event and it was primarily celebrated at the Easter Vigil. Um, baptism is an Easter sacrament, and it was very much associated with the Paschal mystery. And here, I want to get a little bit more into that to make it clearer that Lent, the period before Easter, became preparation for baptism. And this started to take shape in the fourth century. We will have a session on the liturgical year, and I'll go through the development. But it didn't. The development didn't start with Advent, even though Advent is the beginning of the liturgical year. It started here, with with initiation happening at Easter, and then working backwards. Well, the, these people need a preparation time. So Lent was invented, so to speak to prepare for Easter, yes, but primarily for the catechumens to prepare for baptism. And here again, we see ramifications of this today. This twofold meaning of Lent um, finds its origin here, that during Lent, we're preparing uh, really the elect, but we'll get into that language at another time, those preparing for baptism are having their immediate preparation during Lent. But we, the baptized during Lent, and we, we forget this and most people don't know it, we should be preparing to renew our baptismal promises. That's a really important point that cannot be missed for us today. And we need to emphasize that. And then certainly in align with this, uh, preparing for baptism, preparing for renewal, comes the penitential aspect and what that involves. Uh, the church does not negate that at all. And when we talk about the liturgical year, I will go more into depth on that. But, um, yeah, Carlos. If, um, if that's a good question. Uh, Carlos, I don't know if you heard, but he asked the question about children in the early church, if they um, celebrate, had <laughs> baptism, the anointing, and Holy Communion, the answer, bless you. The answer is yes. In the early church, initiation was one event. And although most of the people coming into the church were adults, there's evidence in the early church that households came into the Christian community that so that meant children as well and if a child was baptized they were also anointed and received the Eucharist and believe it or not um, um, infant or children at baptism receiving the Eucharist really uh, didn't fall um, in many places, because again, there was not a lot of unification, but in many places, that practice, um, I want better dates, but I think it went into the 12th century and then it was done away with. 
I have a book on the history and I bring this up. I have to go back and check the date, but it, it took a long time that the baptized are entitled to the Eucharist. So the thought was if whoever we're baptizing gets the Eucharist. So that, that did happen in the early church. But you're going to see, hopefully in a few minutes, it's only quarter after nine, you're going to see how infant baptism springs up. Okay? All right. You good? I know I'm, I'm going fast because I'm trying to get through this. But if we don't, we don't. I'll pick up where we... So anyway, let's see. Um, all right. So from the fifth century, this is on uh, your slide number 20. From the fifth century, the number of adult candidates for baptism decreases. Here you go, Carlos. You see what happens? Uh, things gradually shift. And so these mass conversions in the fourth, we jump to the fifth, there's a decrease. And there's an increase in the number of baptisms of infants. Can anybody guess why? Who was one of the fathers of the church? No, can you guess? I'm just going to guess. I really guess. Don't know. I was going to say maybe there was a lot of infant deaths and they wanted to ensure their salvation. Uh, okay, but there's a reason for that. Who was one of the predominant fathers of the uh, fathers of the church? Augustine. And what was one of his theologies that he really built up? Theology of anybody? Anybody in large theology? Original sin. That was one of Augustine's main things. Here we have original sin. All right? Baptism takes away original sin and all sin. All right? This wasn't a theology of the early church. So now people want their infants baptized, and this is certainly danger of death. But that's a big reason uh, because this uh, theology of original sin. So here's where we see a shift. And gradually, uh, if we were to get a whole course on the history of the catechumenate, gradually we'll see that the catechumenate died out completely. That's why the Second Vatican Council called for a restoration. The only place where the catechumenate, there are some remnants of it is in missionary lands. There are some, there's evidence that in missionary countries, that they were using the ancient catechumenate, uh, principles of it. Um, but more on that as we fast forward um, in a couple of weeks. So here we have infant baptism springing up. The ritual didn't change. This is an interesting thing. Now we have an order of baptism for children. They didn't have that then. All they had was what they used for adult catechumens which was a process. And basically what they did was they took a whole process and they squished, excuse my bad terminology, but they squished it into this one ritual for children, infants. Um, so they made pastoral adaptations, but basically parents were answering for their children. We know that we do that today. It will, but it was, Celebrated at first at Easter, but then gradually at other times. Okay? The clothing with white garment, uh, which was we read about in St. Paul, 
stayed. Newly baptized were anointed with chrism. And again, it wasn't called confirmation. Um, some may have received the Eucharist. My research shows me that it was common to give the Eucharist to anybody, infant, regardless, the Eucharist at baptism. And interestingly enough, the washing of the feet used to be part of baptismal ritual. Now, what we do on Holy Thursday um, was not part of baptism. But again, broad strokes. I'm just giving you a, a sense here. So here's just a quick summary of everything we talked about. This is a period of what Metzger refers to as stabilization. This organization, we've got to have things kind of set of what we're doing in all these communities because of the growth in the communities, massive conversions, and the development of the catechumenate. All right? After the fifth century, as I said, adult baptisms are rare and the catechumenate declines. Um, but other liturgical practices develop, and we see more development of Eucharistic prayers, daily assemblies. At first, people only gathered on Sunday, the Lord's Day. But here gradually we see that um, people begin to have these daily assemblies uh, during the week. Um, so it's just, and then penitential rites. Um, penitential rites kind of creep in because after adults were baptized very often they um, went against the christian community so they were technically considered outside the community so there was great debate uh and again this is the history of the sacrament of penance but in a nutshell there was a debate if a person is outside of the community because they're committing apostasy, uh, speaking out against the Christian community. But now they want to come back. Do we rebaptize? That was a question early on. And early on, the answer was no. There's one baptism. So this is where the, what we call the order of penitence starts to creep in, where people who want to come back, and we have these penitential rites, where they publicly um, this was a public thing that people knew. They, they're the penitents. They want to come back. Um, so ju again, uh, just as an aside so that you're, you're aware of some of these things. And again, Metzger goes into detail. Rough. Metzger about the fact that if somebody sinned mm -hmm. after they're baptized, mm -hmm. they were kicked out and could be kicked out for years. They could be. Yes, okay. they could. When when did they go to the practice of just go to confession? And oh, that was much later. Okay. Uh, particularly with the Desert Fathers and in monasteries and things like that. Okay. That was way later on. Yeah, because I mean, if you, if, yeah. you know, this is one of the reasons why Constantine didn't get baptized till his deathbed. Right. Most people stayed uh, catechumens for for a lifetime and then convert. You know, say yes, baptize me. You know, um, because for this reason. So here, here we see this development of somebody being excommunicated, so to speak, but then they ask to come back. So we see the early origins, but it was, but it was just, it was modeled like the catechumenate. It was a process 
of somebody coming back to the church. Some a priest that I knew years ago that I actually studied in this building, uh, the sacrament of penance with, he, he uh, wrote extensively on restoring the order of penitence and having a process for people who want to come back. I mean, people leave the church. I mean, technically, once you're baptized, you're baptized. You can't say I'm unbaptized. It's it's an indelible mark. Um, so um, he he was a proponent of having an order of penitence um, alongside catechumens using the principles that uh, uh, using the characteristics of the catechumen to bring them back into the church. And this reconciliation, so to speak, in the early church happened on Holy Thursday. Uh, Metzger refers to that as well. Uh, it's never happened. I think he referred to it as a returning church or something like that, but never really took took hold at all. Um, you know, with somebody like who, who let's say, leaves uh, joins a Lutheran church, but then they want to come back. Paul Turner writes about this a lot. Um, it's required in the sacrament Thanks, Paul, for referring to the degree of what you did. That it was something that was really, you know, wasn't a big deal. You could say, Paul, and that's with high dancing. No, I think that, yeah. Yeah.
in the Vatican. So I will look at my notes and try to give you some broad strokes again so that we can get to really the heart and center of where we want to go. What is it that we, the vision of the church now, uh, the, the church of the Second Vatican Council. And again, I, I said this uh, just by way of uh, summary in these last few minutes, I said it before, that what we have in the Second Vatican Council is deeply traditional, deeply conservative. A lot of people don't know that. They don't realize it, but I, uh, it is. There's no doubt about it. Because of these sources that we have, it doesn't get better than the Didache, the apostolic tradition, and all those others that I mentioned, and that they bring this to the table of the Second Vatican Council. That's what made the uh, liturgical document so rich, because we had this historical study that was not available. At the time of Trent, for example, I mentioned in the beginning, and we'll talk about it next week, there was, there was nothing much liturgical happened at Trent. Um, Trent, remember, was more in defense of the Protestant Reformation. It was more doct doctrinal. But there, there is some, but very little. I, I went through it and, and very little. And that's what I want to point out to you. Uh, what it did liturgically, what it said liturgically, but not much. And, and then nothing changed until the Second Vatican Council. So that's where we'll start next time, live from Yonkers. <laughs> Woo! Thank you. You all okay? All good. All well, good. We have a couple of minutes. I know it's like, sorry. Medieval church next week.